Thanks for joining us for another Creating Dementia Solutions, a Miles for Memories program here on Access Vision and a podcast as well. Make sure you're following the Miles for Memories Facebook page so you're aware when those episodes become available. I'm Richard Pyatt. If you were with us in our last episode, you know we're spending a few episodes talking about research and various aspects of Alzheimer's and dementia. And our special guests are Dr. Graham Atkin from Michigan State University and Emily Bossy, who will be a doctor someday and is focusing on this particular uh, type of ailment. So we appreciate your input today. We're gonna talk a little bit about subtypes of dementia and Emily's gonna help us understand that. I think when we talk about dementia, the words dementia and Alzheimer's sometimes get interchanged, but there really are different types of dementia and Alzheimer's is one. And there are others as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I think when people think about dementia, they automatically associate it with Alzheimer's disease. But it's important to remember that dementia is more of a broad uh, term to describe like a subset of symptoms. So when we think about dementia, we think about it, the textbook definition being changes in cognitive function as well as memory changes. And it's important to remember that this is like an umbrella term, and then underneath we have different subtypes. So Alzheimer's disease being the most common type that we see, but there are other ones as well. So I'm going to talk about vascular dementia, which is associated with um, history of small vessel strokes or chronic ischemia, loss of blood flow to the brain. There's also something called frontotemporal dementia, and then there's also one called Lewy body dementia is what I'm going to talk about. And there are a couple different ones as well, but these are um, some of the top most common ones. It's interesting because um, we might not, as lay people, spend a lot of time delving into the differences of those, but they really do present differently in some cases, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. And I think as a future provider like myself, it's really important to understand the different categorizations of it because they are treated a little bit differently. And so it's important to take your patient presentation and their history and everything about their current situation in order to diagnose them in the best way possible to make sure that they get the most appropriate type of care. Mm -hmm. In deciding which subtype we're talking about here, do you find that, that folks tend to go to Dr. Google and start asking questions of the internet and try to figure those things out on their own when really someone like the two of you should be the ones chiming in on that. Yeah, I think absolutely. I think you have one moment where you know you forgot your keys to go to work or you forgot something at home and you have that thought like, oh gosh, like is this it? And so we jump on Google and we search our symptoms and all of these different things come up, but it's important to remember that you can't completely diagnose yourself based on one thing, and you can't diagnose yourself on Google. So it's very important to go to your provider, and if you are actually concerned about something, kind of discuss that with them. So yes, Dr. Dr. Google, I would <laughs> say, is the best type of doctor to go to. Right, yeah, and, and it's really easy to stress yourself out looking at that. Yeah. Uh, I can certainly attest. What's the most important thing in terms of, of a medical viewpoint when you're talking about the different subtypes? What do you really want to know and how does that affect the next steps? Yeah, so I think the most important part, all these different subtypes, they're caused by a couple like a couple different things. And the, the root cause of that is going to gear the treatment choice. So what's Alzheimer's disease, I'm sure you've heard of, we have these things called amyloid beta plaques, as well as tau tangles. And so the current research thinks that the more of these plaques and tangles that we have, the worse of the severity of the symptoms there are. And so we try and guide our treatments towards these type of findings that we see. Mm -hmm. Now you compare this to something like 
vascular dementia. And when I say vascular dementia, essentially what this is, is a patient comes in with a history of multiple strokes, whether this be small vessel or large vessel, either way. And over time, if, as you have chronic loss of blood flow to the brain, you can experience damage in that part, those parts of the brain. So if you have a patient with a history of that and they present with dementia-like symptoms as well as other things, instead of targeting them with a specific medication that's more specific for Alzheimer's, sometimes we also like to treat those risk factors for um, vascular dementia. Um, and some of these risk factors are things that are also risk factors for heart disease. Um, so we think about high blood pressure, high cholesterol, things like that. These are modifiable risk factors that are not only increase your risk for heart disease as well as vascular dementia. So that is just one example of how the treatment differs a little. Um, And so it's really important to get to the bottom of, okay, what is the root cause? And then being able to do your best to treat your patient guided towards that. Yeah. So contrast that with what is it? Frontal temporal? Is that yeah. the next one? Yeah. yeah. So the uh, another one I wanted to talk about is frontal temporal dementia. So the name describes essentially what's happening. So we have damage to the frontal and temporal lobes of our brains right uh-huh. here. Um, and this is a type of dementia that's caused by a buildup of proteins, which is a similarity between the different subtypes of dementia. And this specific one, there's a buildup of a tau protein as well as a TDP43 protein. And essentially what happens is these buildups get in the way of neuron signaling and the neuron can't do the functions that it normally does. Underneath the you know, headline of frontal temporal dementia, there's a couple different clinical variants. One that's the most common, that is typically that what we see, it's a behavioral variant. And this is a little bit different from what you think of in Alzheimer's because you see changes in personality. You might see changes in judgment and decision-making. And so patients oftentimes will have frequent outbursts. They'll have abnormal decision-making, um, reckless behavior. So it's a little bit different, and this is more of an acute onset in these type of patients. You can also see a progressive aphasia variant, and aphasia is just a fancy word to say language disorder. So this is a little bit different, again, from Alzheimer's because these patients can suffer difficulty with speech, whether that be speech comprehension or speech production. So this is just another thing, again, a little bit of a different twist on a type of dementia. And so it's important to be able to recognize that these patient is suffering these type of symptoms so we can target the treatment towards that. When you talk about language, I think all of us sometimes struggle for a word. Yeah. Right? We're, we're busy trying to, what's, what's that word? I think what you're saying is it's probably more complex than that. Is that true? Yeah, of course. So the way I like to think of it is when we have a language disorder, we can essentially have two flavors of it. So the first one is speech comprehension. So patients with this type of aphasia, they not only can't understand what you're saying towards them, but they also, when they speak back to you, their speech doesn't make any sense. It's nonsensical. It's kind of like word salad is the best way to describe it. And so they're fluent. Their speech is flowing without a problem, but it doesn't make any sense. And they are completely unaware that their speech isn't making sense, but a layman person can tell that, you know, it's not comprehensible. That reminds me of a stroke. What you described reminds me. Yeah, absolutely. And they describe it as a Wernicke's aphasia is the medical term for it. And essentially the reason why we can see this in frontal temporal dementia is the region of the brain. When the temporal lobe is affected, you can either have a stroke in this region, Hmm. seeing those symptoms, or you can have protein buildup, again, leading to this type of symptoms that we see. So yes, good connection. So the next one that you mentioned might be one of the more 
famous ones, I suppose, the Lewy body, because that's the Robin Williams example. Talk about the differences there. If you yeah, will. yeah, of course. So Lewy body dementia is an interesting one to me because obviously it presents similar to Parkinson's disease. Uh-huh. And so, and I think an important thing for me as a future physician is to be able to uh, differentiate these two things because they are a little bit different of a disease and we want to make sure that we're coming up with the most appropriate diagnosis, as I said. So when it comes to Lewy body dementia, the key thing to remember is that a patient will experience cognitive changes as well as motor symptoms less than one year apart. Now, if you have Lewy body dementia, typically the cognition changes present first, and these are usually executive functions, so less so memory, but more things like uh, decision-making, judgment, stuff like that will be affected rather than the memory right away. So if a patient presents with the cognitive changes and then motor symptoms shortly after, we consider it Lewy body dementia. But if a patient presents with motor symptoms, and when I say motor symptoms, I should probably explain that a little more. Um, These are going to be Parkinsonian-like features, so things like a shuffling gait, a muscle tremor, muscle rigidity, slowness of movements, things that we see in Parkinson's disease, these patients also experience. But the key to differentiate is the clinical timeline, if you will. In our last episode, we were talking about wading through the other possibilities Besides dementia, here's another one, Parkinson's, mm-hmm. that uh, that you have to consider, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's incredible. So how much do we know, just generally speaking, I'm not looking for a dissertation, obviously, but how much do we know about predisposition for any of these and also what we might be doing that would contribute to some of these diagnoses? Yeah, yeah. so unfortunately there is no end-all, be-all or anything that can tell you, yes, you are going to develop dementia versus yes, you are not going to develop dementia. With something like Alzheimer's disease, we know that, for example, there's a sporadic form and a familial form. So in the sporadic form, we know that there are genetic factors and environmental factors at play. There are certain genes that we, I'm sure you guys have talked about before. There's the APOE4 gene that is known to increase your risk for Alzheimer's disease. Um, A couple other genes that I'll throw out are the presenilin 1 and 2 genes, also been listed in the media. Um, These are shown to increase your risk, but it's important to remember that these aren't the only things at play, and there are environmental factors as well. And one thing that I like to talk about when I think about things like this is there isn't anything that we can do to prevent us from developing Alzheimer's, but there are a lot of things, a lot of associations that have cited different things that we can do to try and decrease our risk. Mm -hmm. Things like staying physically active, staying mentally active, mentally stimulating activities can really... um, keep your brain active is really important in trying to uh, decrease your risk for some of these diseases. Mm -hmm. So nothing that we can do to stop it from coming, but there are things that we know that are at play. Is it customary to, when, when someone's presenting and maybe has had a diagnosis, to just check for these genes just to help you sort out what might be happening? I do not know the exact answer to that, but I would say probably if If a patient presents with the picture of Alzheimer's disease, for example, as we were talking about with those genes, and they come in with uh, a picture that looks similar like it, I think once you go and see your neurologist, I would think that we would test for those genes and Mm. potentially do a genetic panel. Probably provides at least some understanding. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Well, we appreciate so much uh, this information and the distinctions that you've been able to make for us as it relates to dementia. Emily Bossy and Dr. Graham Atkin, Michigan State University. We're going to continue on this tack in our next couple of episodes. In fact, you've probably been seeing and hearing in the news a lot about Alzheimer's and dementia treatments 
and medications and things that have been making news recently. And so we're going to talk about that. We'll talk a bit about exercise and, and its benefits as it relates to dementia. And so we'll talk about all of that in our future episodes, Creating Dementia Solutions, a Miles for Memories program. Click the like button on the Facebook page for Miles for Memory so you're alerted when these episodes become available and also other information like activities and things related to Miles for Memories. We'll see you again soon. I'm Richard Pyatt. Thanks for being with us.